You guys ready for the word? All right. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 this morning. The gospel of Mark was, uh, was written by a, a close ministry associate of the apostle Peter. His name was Mark. He also went by John Mark sometimes. The focus of this gospel account is uniquely more leaning toward the actions of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, than, than his teachings. In this gospel account, we actually find 18 miracles and only four parables. Now in chapter 15, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor in that region. So Rome, the Roman empire had control over that area. And so Pontius Pilate was the representative there. Now, when he was brought before Pontius Pilate, the crowds, we, they were demanding the death of Jesus. And Pilate wasn't really about killing Jesus, but he saw the way that the crowds were rising up and he felt the need to appease them. And so he did. He sent Jesus to be crucified. In verse 33, we find Jesus hanging on the cross, breathing his final breaths. And we get to see his last words. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word? If you're new here, the reason why I have you stand for the reading of God's word is because it is distinct. It's different. This is the word of God. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the word of God. You may be seated. You know, it's difficult to, it's difficult to grasp the significance of this passage if you don't know a little bit of history of the nation of Israel. So I'm going to do my best to share a portion of that story with you today through a certain lens and with a certain purpose in mind. Many of us know the basics of the story of creation. God created the heavens and the earth, including man and woman. And he blessed them. Did you know that his first command to them was not do not? It was do. It was be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. In that time, the man and the woman were in God's manifest presence. That is to say, his evident and perceivable presence. He walked with them in the garden. Unfortunately, it wasn't long until human beings rebelled 
against God. They withheld their trust from him. And they disobeyed him. And as a result, they were cursed. And they were separated from the presence of God. Alienated from him. But our God was not content with that alienation. And so he called a man named Abraham. And Abraham, he made a covenant with him. He made a promise. He told him that through Abraham's family, all the families of the world would be blessed. God comes through on his word. Abraham's family grew and it became a nation, a nation that we know as Israel. And this nation was enslaved in Egypt until God delivered them through his servant Moses. And upon their deliverance, God led them into the wilderness and he made another covenant with them. In this covenant, he provided blessing and what was required of them was to obey his instruction called Torah. Now, it is in this part of the story that we are reintroduced. We are reintroduced to the idea of God dwelling in a physical place among humanity. It's an important part. But instead of a garden, his presence would dwell in a tent. This tent would be formally called the tabernacle, which is kind of a fancy word for dwelling place. And in this dwelling place, they would set it up and tear it down and set it up and tear it down wherever they went as God led them through the wilderness. And God dwelt among them, but it wasn't quite that simple. See, in the tabernacle, there was a place, there was an area called the holy place. Now, in the holy place, all the priests, they would, they would go in and out regularly and perform their ritual duties. But then there was another space in the tabernacle, and it was called the most holy place. And in this place that was separated from everything else by a curtain, only one person could go in, and only once a year. The high priest was allowed to enter into the most holy place on one particular day, Yom Kippur, also known as the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest couldn't just mosey on into the most holy place just because it was the right day. The high priest had to prepare himself. He had to wash himself. He had to put on special clothing. And he brought incense. And perhaps most importantly of all, he had to come with the blood of a sacrificial animal that he would sprinkle on the Ark of the Covenant, on a particular part of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. Now, if you don't understand the Ark of the Covenant, it's, it's not just the Indiana Jones thing. 
The Ark of the Covenant was the physical symbol of the very presence of God during this time. It was most sacred. Now, with this act, with the, with the high priest coming in and sprinkling the, the blood of the sacrificial animal on the mercy seat, what was happening is that the sin or the wrongdoing of the nation, including the high priest himself, because he wasn't perfect, their sin would be atoned for, which is kind of a church word for covered. Now, some of us, some of you guys might be thinking right now, Seth, what in the world are you doing? Why are you going into all of this? What is with all the talking of the ceremonial and all the formalities? And Seth, we live on this side of the cross. And don't we not need to super worry about the Old Testament stuff? And aren't we in the new covenant? So why are you talking so much about the old covenant? And I, I, I hear you. Okay, I feel you. I thought about that. There's a reason why this process was so formal. And that reason is extremely important to the story. It's absolutely fundamental to understanding this story. So I have to pause the story right now and explain to you a little bit about why that was necessary. You see, one of the most central attributes, if not the very most central attribute of God throughout the scriptures, is that he is holy. He is kadosh, hagyas. He is completely distinct, set apart, in a league and category all by himself. And in that distinction, he is completely separate from sin, and from evil. Now, that might lead us to the question, why why in the world? Can't he he handle it? I mean, he's God. He's all-powerful. Why why can't he handle being being around sin or evil? Is he afraid of evil? No, 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 no. It's actually more like the opposite of that. See, my good friend, Jamie Meyer, he says it like this. Evil is not safe in God's presence. I'm going to say that again. Evil is not safe in God's presence. And the strict regulations around his presence in the time of this covenant were a safety measure for us. I know that might be a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Evil is not safe in the presence of God. And God set up a system that would protect us. Now, from the fall of humanity in the garden to the construction of the tabernacle, there was a separation between God and people because of sin. We have to talk about sin, friends. I don't, I don't, I don't just get to tell you that God likes you and that everything's going to be okay. Although those things are true (laughs) if you're in Christ. (laughs) But I have to talk to you about sin because God cares about it. I know it's not the most comfortable subject, the idea that 
we actually do wrong things and they actually have consequences because there's a world out there that wants to tell you that you just live into yourself and be whatever you're going to be and do whatever you're going to do and just honor yourself and reflect on yourself and care for yourself and worship yourself. Here's the thing, though. The other part is that holiness is not God's only attribute. He's also the God of steadfast love. In Exodus 34, do you know how he self-defines? The Lord, the Lord. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how God talks about God. And in this love, it was his will and is his will to make a way for his people to be with him. Okay, now back to the story. After years of wandering in the wilderness due to their lack of trust and their disobedience, God brought Israel into a good land. And he did this through his servant, Joshua. Now, Joshua was a cool guy. He did some good things. One thing he didn't do was pass his leadership principles on to the next generation. Let that be a warning to each one of us. Joshua was a good leader, but he did not leave the right legacy. Because as soon as Joshua died, Israel abandoned God. And in their abandonment of God, what happened is that the nations surrounding them came and oppressed them and harassed them, and they were miserable. And so what, good, what did God do? He didn't give up on Israel because they messed up again. No, he raised up judges. And I'm not talking about judges like you know. I'm not talking about Judge Judy. I'm... The judges of this time were leaders. They were agents of deliverance that God raised up to save Israel from their foreign oppressors. But who would have thunk it? Israel didn't like God's system. And so they demanded a king. And the kingdom, as one might expect, got off to a pretty rocky start with a guy named Saul. However, God raised up a shepherd boy named David after Saul for him to lead the nation of Israel. And David was different. I mean, for all his stuff, he seriously was different. He's the only person in the scriptures to be called a man after God's own heart. And he had this thing about him where he lived in the midst of the old covenant, but somehow it was like he had a revelation of what was coming. And he related with God in a way that was beyond his time. And we see this intimate connection between David and God. We see it in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel. And we especially see it in David's own expressions to God in the Psalms. Now, David, I love this. David was so full of zeal for the Lord, he couldn't stand the thought that he was dwelling in this nice house, but God was still in a tent. He couldn't, he couldn't handle it. And so, you know what? You know what? I, he purposed in his heart to build a more permanent, nicer structure 
a lavish building for God that would be called the temple. But God wasn't about it. He was like, David, that's not for you, man. I, that's a paraphrase. No, no, God went to David, said, oh, you want to build me a house? Ha ha, I'm gonna build you a house. Not a physical structure. I'm gonna build you a family. And I'm gonna build you a lineage. And by the way, your kingdom's gonna last forever through your offspring. I love, I love God. We're like, we're like, I got something good to offer you, God. And he's like, you just wait. That's how it always is, by the way. We offer him our very best. And he, you know, it's like, I'm, t- I'm telling you, I mean, this isn't scripture, but like when I look at this, it's like David came, he drew his little crayon picture and he goes, God, do you like it? And God's like, David, it was right that it was in your heart to do this, but I'm going to build you a house. How about that? And so David's immediate offspring, his son, Solomon, actually would be the one who would build that temple, that permanent structure for the presence of God to dwell in. And that temple would have a very special place behind a heavy curtain where only the high priest could enter once a year. And it was called the Holy of Holies. Now, I said earlier that David walked closely with God, and he did. But he also experienced a lot of pain and suffering in his life. Now, some of it he kind of stepped into. But there was a lot of unjust things that were done to David throughout his life. I mean, Saul did David dirty. David had enemies that were evil and unjust. And and there were a lot of things that weren't going for him. But then at times, David kind of invited it. Bathsheba. And David wasn't shy about expressing his feelings when he was going through hard times, y'all. I don't know if you read the Psalms. But he was about expressing what was going on. And and, and I take great hope in that. And I'm thankful for that because I go, oh my gosh, other people are human. (laughs) I'm not just this wretched, gross, I mean, kind of, but you know what I mean. I have hope. (laughs) I have hope when I see that someone who I look to as one of the heroes of the faith had some really, really dark moments and had some really, really rough and harsh things to say. Now, we see David express his grief over and over again in the Psalms. And did you know there's a whole genre of the Psalms dedicated to this grief and sorrow? They're called Psalms of Lament. And did you know that it's the largest genre of the Psalms? The big, maybe... It's like the biggest section of the Psalms are like, wow, God, this is terrible and I feel bad. You're still good, but this is bad. That's like the, that, that's the biggest section of the Psalms. And I want to read to you now from a very special Psalm of Lament. From Psalm 22. Please pay close attention to these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me for the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. 
Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Anything familiar stand out there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's no mistake that the question that Jesus cried out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, that it was the first question of this psalm that David cried out, that David wrote a thousand years before Jesus' great-grandfather to the 14th generation. Now, there's a great extent to which what David was saying was true for him. It was true for him at a certain level. But when you look at the prophetic nature of the psalm, it has such a deeper meaning for the experience of Jesus, our Messiah. It's like David was writing about him, but what he was really writing about is what Jesus would go through. And do you know that Jesus knew that he was the fulfillment of Psalm 22? On the cross in his final breaths, Jesus experienced separation from the presence of the Father on our behalf. I'm gonna say that again, because you gotta catch this. On the cross, Jesus experienced separation from the presence of the Father on our behalf. How could that be? Second Corinthians 5 says it like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. You see, Jesus never sinned once. He was perfect. But he did become sin. And the Father is separate from sin. As he breathed his last, the curtain, temp the curtain in the temple, that is the curtain that separated the people from the Holy of Holies, that curtain, it was torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier between the holy God and the sinful people was undone. You see, the fullness of 2 Corinthians 5.21, I, I didn't really read you the whole thing. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Please don't read over that church as some nice poetic language that you know from your Sunday school. He became sin. Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you are in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. If you are in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. Jesus experienced distance from the Father so that we could draw near. God no longer sees us through the lens of sin, but through the lens of blood. The blood of the only perfect, perfect sacrificial lamb. 
And it, it is only by that that we are able to enter in. You see, on the cross, the holiness of God and the steadfast love of God collided. And in that moment, both were perfectly satisfied. Now, why would I take you so much time today to tell you that story? Why would I go into all the tabernacle and, and, and temple? And Here it is. I believe that God, I believe that God would desire that his church would have an understanding of the price of his presence. That his church would have an understanding of the price of his presence so that we might grab hold of the immeasurable value of his presence. Don't get casual about experiencing the God of the universe. See, here at Heart of the City, we are unapologetically chasing after the heart of God. And it is in His presence where we get to know His heart, not just about Him and not just with our minds, but in His presence, we get to know Him not as a fact, but as a Father. It is there where we have an intimate experiential knowledge of him and all of a sudden I just heard all the skeptics go experiential Seth that sure sounds subjective to me why don't you just stay to the scriptures I am staying to the scriptures the scriptures are the very framework that give the principle that give the truth that allow us to even appropriate what it is to have an authentic encounter with the presence of God. Oh, I'm saying to the scriptures, friends. Don't ever pit his presence against his word. They operate in perfect tandem. I don't know, Seth, it just kind of feels like emotionalism when you just got loud and, you know, you walked around and all the music and the lights change and, and the singing and I just, and I, are you sure you're not just stirring up people's feelings? Feelings. Oh, you want to talk about feelings? He paid far too great a price for you to write his presence off as goosebumps. <laughs> feelings. Do feelings come? Well, sure. Feelings come when you're in the very manifest presence of the Most High God, the Alpha and the Omega, the very embodiment of holiness and goodness and faithfulness and love. It is only natural that your body and your mind is gonna have some kind of reaction when it brushes with its Creator. Don't talk to me about feelings. In His presence, we are transformed. In His presence is where we find actual, real peace. In His presence, we find protection. In His presence, we experience times of refreshing. In His presence, where my soul can actually rest. And yes, in His presence, there is fullness of joy, if you want to call that a feeling. Come on. 
How heartbreaking it must be for the Father. How heartbreaking for Him to know that He is so abundantly provided and paid so high a price. And yet so many of His children are afraid of emotional manipulation and so they won't even draw near because they're afraid that some human being's gonna pervert it. I'm telling you, God is very familiar with people or forces trying to pervert the true thing that He makes and He is not stopped by that and He is not inhibited by that. And my question to you is, are you going to be inhibited by that? Are you going to be so afraid that someone's going to manipulate you that you don't even go to the well to drink? Don't do that, American church. It's so easy to sit back in the skeptic seat and say, well, I don't really know if that was the real thing. Because you didn't take a drink. I came to stir your hunger for something a lot deeper than emotion or feelings. I've come to stir your hunger for something that God has paid the ultimate price for through the blood of the lamb that was slain. I've come to stir your hunger for that which lies beyond the curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom. I've come to stir your hunger for the presence of God. And you can choose after today to still be casual about it. That's a choice you can make. But don't. I refuse to become casual about the presence of God. And to go, oh, well, maybe if we just do this, these songs and, and, then, and, and this feeling. No. His presence is infinitely precious. And it's not just so you can have some kind of little emotional buzz. It's so that you can be changed from the inside out and that when you behold him, that you might become like him. If your appetite is sufficiently kindled, you say, yes, I do want God's presence. I want more of him. I want, I, I want his presence, but I just, I just don't know how to enter in. Here's the thing, I first wanna offer you just a word of comfort, friend. If you are in Christ, he's already with you. He's already with you. He has not left you alone. He's with you everywhere you go. And yet, at the same time, hear me. God is a little bit different than we are. Remember how I said he was distinct, different, set apart? You see, for us, we can be in one place at one time and either we're there or we're not. See, God, he's different. See, he, he can be everywhere all at once. We call that omnipresence, omnipresent, like present all. But he also manifests himself in specific places at specific times to specific people. And you're going, oh, Seth, now that sounds pretty mystic. I don't know. Hey, look. I'm a pretty analytical mind and I can't wrap my mind around it. I'll let you know. But you don't have to understand it to know that it's true. I've been having to tell myself that for 15 years, ever since I went to college, private Christian college. 
You don't have to understand it for it to be true. Just because you can't wrap your mind around it doesn't mean that it's not God's truth. Church, can I tell you that it's actually good for you to experience mystery? In an age where information, all the information you could ever want is at your fingertips and all you gotta do is reach out and type it on Google or whatever, chat GPT or, is that what it's called? AI stuff, I don't know. Gosh, I just, all of a sudden I'm 31 and I feel like an old person. In this age, where you think that you are just one click away from all the information that you will ever need, it is good for you to have mystery, American church. It is good for you. Now, the good news about this, this mystery is that God doesn't make it complicated to enter into his manifest presence. And I'm not gonna offer you some kind of exhaustive list because I don't have near enough time. All the ways that we connect with God, all the ways that we experience his manifest presence. But I do want to share with you one primary and simple key that he gives us in his scriptures, okay? Fair enough? You see, I don't really believe in coincidences when it comes to the Bible. I actually believe that every word is purposeful and exactly where it's meant to be. I know that's scandalous but I actually believe that. I believe that every word is where it's supposed to be and that it is the heart of God for people. I actually believe that. I trust in God's word completely. I trust that it has come from the most high God. And so when I see that in this chapter, Psalm 22, just two verses after the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says this, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we already talked about what his holiness means, but what is this word enthroned? In the original Hebrew, it is yashab, and it, it's actually a verb that more plainly means to sit or to remain or to dwell. But almost every occurrence in the Old Testament, hear me, almost every occurrence in the Old Testament, this verb is used to describe where someone lives. Where someone rests, where someone inhabits. And this word praises, well, in the ancient Hebrew, there's seven different words for praises. But this particular word, it's the admiration of who God is and what he has done. It is the word tequila. And it's usually sung and it's often unscripted and spontaneous. You know why we sing spontaneous songs up here? It's not so that we can impress you with our cleverness of coming up with a new song. We sing spontaneous songs up here because we want to bring him the tehillah. You see, when we cast our attention and our affection and our focus and the words of our mouth on his great deeds, on his character, on his attributes, on who he is, and it bubbles out of us because of our gratitude for him, that is where he can rest. That is where he sits down. We build a throne for him with our Tehillah praises.